0: From the dark web to your radio dial, you are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 W-O-A-I.
1: Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran and this is a special episode we've now been on the air for 100 episodes they've let me continue to talk on the radio they've not kicked us off yet uh, we haven't even been bleeped once uh, at this point i think that's a uh, thanks to our amazing uh, editor and producer and the uh, rest of the crew and the staff because i'm sure i've probably said at least one of those words you're not allowed to say on the radio during these first hundred programs if you're new to cyber talk radio we cover all aspects of cybersecurity and and good amount about the ecosystem here in San Antonio, which gives a, a good view into the national ecosystem as well if you're listening on uh, iTunes or Pocket Cast or any other the other uh, podcasting services out there. San Antonio is the second largest cybersecurity market outside of the Beltway and that area in Washington D.C. and that whole giant uh, metro there. Uh, so while we we talk about uh, some of the workforce development initiatives going on here in the city, uh, we talk about Cyber Patriot, uh, that's uh, cybersecurity for kids and team sports. We've had guests on covering uh, coding and programs we're trying to put into schools to encourage more of this software development and entrepreneurial mindset mindset. These are all things that we're doing in San Antonio, and those things are allowing us to be one of the stronger cybersecurity markets. So if your city is thinking about what do we need to do, go back and listen to some of those previous 100 episodes. There's a lot of good ideas on there. And even with all of the things that we've been able to cover on this program, all of the work that's going on here from early childhood education, all the way up through workforce development, even uh, with special programs for folks that are uh, exiting the military and veterans and uh, post Collegiate training, uh, whether it's Rackspace opening up Open Cloud Academy or Microsoft with their uh, Systems and Software Academy that just started here in San Antonio. Lots of stuff going on and even with all of that, we still have a massive shortage of talent. I think you'll hear some of that from today's uh, guests as well, where we're going to talk about a, a broad coverage of just technology, not cybersecurity, super specific. Uh, we'll get into some of that, but I think that you have a shortage in both skilled practitioners in cybersecurity and then Uh, Where we will go a little bit deeper today is the lack of even basic general awareness, I think, out there in industry. Um, We're all just trying to get our jobs done, and uh, doing it in a safe manner seems to be one of the uh, last things on most folks' list these days. So if you're not going to be able to stick with us uh, on the broadcast here, this will go up on our website on Tuesday, August 28th. It'll also go on all of the podcasting services out there, and if you happen to find a service that you use and we are not available, you can reach us on Twitter. Facebook. Let us know what that service is. We will get our content published there and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt. So this week's guest and our, our special guest 100th guest is uh, someone I, I got to work with years ago. He was uh, working on a team called Black Box back then, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, for those of you that may have worked at Rackspace back in those days, you likely may know who I'm talking about now. But it's one of the Rackspace founders, uh, one of the former Trinity students here in San Antonio as well. So if any of our uh, interns from students and startups are listening to this program right now, you could go on. And uh, those startups that you're starting actually can grow into big things. So I would like to introduce Dirk Elmendorf. Uh, Dirk, thank you for joining us this week.
0: I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah. So when you, you started this whole thing off, we'll, we'll go back when you're. So we've got we just had nine interns in the the company that I run for my day job uh, over the summer from Trinity, and one of them we're drinking some of their quick sip coffee right now. Uh, but when you, you you started the thing, did you ever imagine there'd be 5,000 employees there?
0: Oh, absolutely not. I grew up in a town of 3,000, and so it's hard to wrap my head around that many people working at one idea.
1: Yeah, one idea. So as you got going there at at Rackspace, it kind of grew, and then it broke off into new teams, and those teams go back into small startups and and rethinking and reinventing ideas and... You've kind of continued on this your whole career. Um, As you said, small town originally. You're not from Elmendorf, Texas, though, are you? I am not from Elmendorf, Texas. Okay. So when you said small town, it was 3,000 people. I just, I had to ask. (laughs) I'd never asked all these years. (laughs) No, no.
0: Actually, in in our family, we kind of joke that there were hardworking Germans uh, from Elmendorf who came to Texas and founded a town, one of the early mayors of San Antonio and Elmendorf. Uh, My family uh, fled military service. Uh, to the Midwest, and may have run an illegal uh, wrestling organization back in the day. So it's slightly different history. I'm just happy that when I'm here, everybody can spell the name.
1: Like Nacho Libre-style wrestling. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I like it. So you've kind of gone the whole gambit of going from startup idea, three of you in a college Dorm room somewhere, maybe on campus. I'm not exactly sure where you've you've figured it all out and got it started. Someone's garage, maybe. So you've gone from that up to all the way through to an IPO and then back to starting new ideas again. So as a serial entrepreneur at this point, uh, for folks that are are looking to get started, um, any ideas, advice, thoughts for them?
0: You know, I think that one of the things that has really struck me in this cycle is that when we started Rackspace, it was really hard to get anything done. It was hard to get resources. It was hard to find investors. It was hard to build technology. And I will tell you, in the modern era, every one of those things has gotten significantly easier. And yet the sport of of founding a company uh, is still... uh, a largely a failing enterprise. Most people don't make it, and it's because it is so brutally difficult. Like I think about like early ideas around marketing were about who are your competitors and how do you position yourself against them. And in the modern world, it isn't about what your competitors are saying. It's about getting that thirty seconds of attention from people who are everyone in the world is trying to get their attention. And how do you figure out which are the ones for you? And so the 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 focus has shifted from purely how do I even do this thing I want to do. To how do I find the people who want what I've got? And I think that those take different tactics and different skills, but it's still a very exciting process.
1: Yeah. This is um, one. I was reading an article recently as well that uh, building a a basic product in an established industry now is not the most difficult part, as you're saying. It's um, actually getting the distribution of that technology out. And and you'll see many cases across uh, where people are solving what we thought were already a solved problem. Uh, Slack, a great example. I mean IRC has been out there for as long as I've been on the internet and it was there when I got there so it's been around even longer than that and basically does everything slack does except it didn't get anywhere near the distribution It never got out of its super tech nerd niche Uh, and so slack went and put it in a web browser and now uh, there's millions of people using it every day for their business. I'm using it for an online um, MBA program. Uh, it, it's out there all over the place. So, yeah, that, that building and access to the tech resources now is not super challenging. Uh, but I think solving business problems and then getting people to use your solution is still and going to be from now until the end of time very difficult.
0: And, and also I feel like there was this middle phase where – We had such tech optimism around, Hey, is there an app for this? Is a question you could ask. And people were kind of like, I want to try something new. Let's do something. And, and if you're starting today, you're now going to face consumers who have tried some things that were terrible. Or burnt out, or they've been through the process of, hey, I really love this product, and now it's dead, or it, you know, left me hanging. I think uh, what is it? Movie Pass is the most recent example of this. Seemed too good to be true, and I think that are they, are they still? I'm not sure if they're still operating or not.
1: If, if they are, and you like to go to the movies, you should get one and just use it for the next month. Yeah, yeah. We're not really sure when the gravy train is going to run out. but it, basically, Movie Pass is a subscription service, kind of like you'd sign up for Netflix, when you, you can sit at home and watch all of your movies. Movie Pass, you sign up for movies, and you get unlimited tickets at the movies and i think it was only like the cost of two tickets
0: i it's everything about it said i'm i hope they figured this model out or it's going to go away but it's a perfect kind of microcosm of the new cycle which is once customers get kind of get acclimated to this idea that oh actually startups sometimes they make it better but sometimes they don't make it or they pivot and they change direction and then i'm left stranded like they're all a little more jaded than they once were And so now it's not just about being new. It has to be, it has to be better. It has to be credible. You know, you have to demonstrate where it fits. And these are beyond just, can you cut the code to make it work? Uh, That's sort of a given. And so when I meet entrepreneurs who are tackling a problem that is both difficult to build and difficult to market, you know, I wish them the best of luck. If you figure that out, it's going to be amazing. But, uh, you know, braver people have died with just trying to solve one of those problems uh, rather than taking them all
1: on. So as as, uh, you look at at this on the difficult to build or difficult to distribute side of things, uh, in the, the app world, I'm drawing in a lot of parallels back to the shareware days of the bulletin board systems before we were all online all the time. And the app stores for the mobile phones feel a lot like when you would log into the BBS and you would list and you would see just a whole bunch of garbage there. And it was hard to sort through the garbage. It was hard to find uh, back then I was a kid, so good games to play that were free because I didn't have money. And the way you paid for shareware back then was you put a check in an envelope and you mailed it off to somebody and then they mailed you back a code. So it wasn't like you just went in the app store and clicked activate or upgrade or whatever else. Um, yes, yeah, so my parents were not keen on letting me mail checks off to random people across the country or across the world because, I mean, some of these shareware authors weren't even in the U.S. then, just like people are writing apps now from all over the world for app stores. I mean, so with this, yeah, is any uh, tips for folks on how to get, if they've built a quality product, how do you get visibility in an app store? How do you get visibility in front of those audiences for that time where they're going to make a decision?
0: Well, I think that the temptation as an entrepreneur is that you want a product that is Good for everybody. Everyone can use this. It's, you know, anyone and everyone. And that isn't a marketing strategy. I think that in the the modern era, you have to be really good at honing in on a very identifiable population and prove that you can get in front of them and get them to convert. And once you get a core group of people to do that, then you can figure out how you can expand out and be used by more and more people. Like, I think to go back to your discussion about Slack, I mean, part of the magic of Slack is that once people started using it and liking it, they went to the next person and said, hey, you got to get in Slack and I'm, I'm going to Slack this to you. And and that starts to build. And that sort of spread um, is magical when it works. But I think it it they didn't start with, hey, everyone can Slack. They didn't try to convert everyone all at once. And I think that a lot of times entrepreneurs see it as, well, if I'm too niche, then I'll never get to everyone. And and I can tell you that not everyone in the world ever needed a server, and Rackspace did just fine.
1: As, as you go out there, you have um, businesses that have super broad platform uh, and network effects, uh, such as Facebook but where the broad social graph makes a huge difference. In Slack, the social graph doesn't make as much of a difference. I don't care if my friends and family aren't on Slack. I'm using Slack to communicate to employees at the company I work with. Um, I'm using it to communicate with some business partners. We connect them into our system. I use it for some online education piece, and like I only care if those very specific audiences are on there. Uh, Versus something like Twitter or Facebook or a broader social network where if you're not the number one platform, um, then you kind of drop off and die. There have been a a number of folks that have tried to build LinkedIn clones and competitors um, that are prettier or not as spammy or whatever it is. And they've uh, gone through there and most of those have failed um, because on those type of platforms, the network effect really does matter because it's a public searching database. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and I'm joined this week by Dirk Elmendorf for our 100th episode. He's one of the founders of Rackspace and now a founder of a company called Brokerage Engine. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but we've kind of began the program going through entrepreneurship. And really now we're in the age of difficulty in reaching a specific audience and so as you're you're going through building this stuff um, I'm going to segue a little bit into some of the cybersecurity aspect of it it seems like it's sort of easier to make things safe these days when you build them but then it also seems like it's not necessarily safe or with a lot of the developers out there like if you're building something in node or ruby and you import 412 dependencies because you're going to be importing 412 is a made up number but it's not going to be off by a lot of what the actual number is to just even build a, a simple website. You're pulling all this stuff in and then we see vulnerabilities and issues and problems come out all the time um, and you're as an entrepreneur you're focused on getting features out to your niche of customers that you're trying that niche market to get your bit of first bit of traction um, and you're making software updates and releases, uh, but you're not necessarily at this point where you have a security team that is uh, pulling in all dependency updates every day and pushing out updates for all your dependencies. So how do you balance some of this stuff at the start or or what do you recommend to entrepreneurs as they're getting going on the the security side of things?
0: Well, I mean, I think that uh, the challenge oftentimes is that security is put in opposition to product because security feels like something that slows you down or it prevents you from doing the things you want because there are there are legitimate concerns about how things play out. Um, I, I've spent my whole career focused on business systems. And so I think that security is never far from my mind, even if it isn't my native discipline. Yeah, And I think that one of the things that is, you know, the world is increasingly under attack on all these surfaces. So it's just kind of amazing how that we anything works. It's, I, I'm actually always surprised that anything works, given how much attack, how much uh, you know, how many vulnerabilities are found. But then also you see that we continue to make progress. Like one of the things that was rolled out recently for npm is it literally looks at all of the libraries you included and warns you, hey, you have this many high uh, risk issues, you have this many uh, low risk issues, but you need to update your your repos so that you can get so you can fix these audits. And I think. That idea of baking security into your product is essential, um, and and the earlier you do that, the better your habits are. You know, you brush your teeth every day. You make sure that you keep on top of the security um, alerts and doing things like, hey, yes, when you were experimenting, you kept a lot of credentials wherever you wanted, but if you're going to be in production, you need to make sure that those are managed responsibly, and encrypted, and least privileged. So there's there's a bunch of core ideas that you can do at the beginning that once you get in the habit of, they're not they're not something that I feel like slows me down.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting you say it that way. Are you guys using containers for some of your new things you're working on now?
0: Um, we At the moment, I would say we are in the process of transitioning to pure containers. We're still like... I feel old. I'm like doing traditional cloud. Yeah. I think one of the virtual machines. Yeah. I mean, it's like one of the hilarious parts of spending a large part of my career building the infrastructure of cloud is I didn't get to use cloud 1.0 because I was building it. Yeah. And now that I'm out, I'm like, oh, look, I get to go back in time a little and use these things. And that has some advantages in that the path is much better understood than the container future that we're headed towards. Um, But it also means that as we make the transition, I can understand the benefits and trade-offs you're making. Why is the industry moving this way? It's not just because of fashion, which every now and then, like the the hype cycle wins and you just have to let it calm down. But I think this is a world where we're not producing system administrators anymore. That's just not a thing. No. And I I often find it's fascinating that I'm the person on the team who is responsible for overseeing system administration because I've done it. And nobody else learns that coming up because the that's just not the development world we work in anymore.
1: No. So are you guys running your own database servers at this point, or are you running a database as a service? We use a, we use a database as a service inside AWS. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, is where, like, all those database security vulnerabilities, there is a team there that is working on that 24-7 to make sure that the database is patched, update, maintained. If there's some flaw in the way it was encrypting records or whatever else, they're going to get in and fix that stuff and as a small startup, you get to leverage that whole team. You don't have to worry about hiring a database security team and a database patching and updating and maintenance team.
0: Oh yeah, I think that that idea of outsourcing to experts, uh, minimizing the surface where I can just make dumb mistakes, um, is is essential to moving fast. Like yeah. There was there were control freaks among us, and myself included, at one point where look, I wanted to control the whole infrastructure, and the and in the modern era, you just can't. You can't control it all and move fast. If you want to control it all, it's a nice hobby. It's something you can yeah. do on the side, but it's not something you're ever going to scale up. And I, at the moment, my goal is to scale quite a bit.
1: Yeah, no, it's it, it's interesting. I can remember back uh, on my control freak tendencies as well. Of I was really annoyed when I finally could no longer buy motherboards where I could set the jumpers to control the IRQs and the the rest of the pieces on there myself on and with the the cards plugging in. And now. Uh, everyone in the audience that's listening that does not have gray hair in their beard it's like, what's a jumper on a motherboard? <laughs> yeah. Absol- well, and that's, you know, I'm I'm involved
0: with leveling up a bunch of new developers, and I've kind of had this interesting push-pull where I constantly feel like, well, wait, am I being patronizing? And then I realized, no, they have no idea what a cron tab is or a cron job. And that's not even necessarily the server to you, but that's where it goes back to. And this technology was old when I started, But it's just not part of their uh, the the way they come up anymore.
1: Yeah, Uh, we had one of our uh, Trinity interns in this summer uh, did some build out of a a virtual machine testing platform for us to test a whole bunch of different Linux distributions with some of our software, and he had never physically touched a server. He's in his uh, third third year, fourth year as a computer science student, and hadn't ever physically seen or touched a server. It was just all virtually off somewhere his whole time and had never, like, installed a hypervisor or any of the things that, uh, going back to the, the initial startup at, at Rackspace uh, that Dirk was that founded, when you started there as an employee, initially you would take what was a broken customer server, a, a white box, and you would have to fix that, so you would have a computer on your desk. Like that was part of like welcome to day one. And if There's we liked bunch-
0: you, all the components worked that were in the box.
1: Yeah, and if not, then you had to troubleshoot it and figure it out. Yeah, uh, and yeah, gone are those days where um, most of the software developers you're even working with now. Yeah, they've never even cracked open their laptop. I mean, with most of the laptops these days, you you can't pull it apart, or computer towers, you can't pull them apart anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I have like a little special toolkit for it because I upgraded some of our office. Uh, laptops to SSDs. And I was like, oh yeah, you're not supposed to do this. I'm getting the message. I hear you. Like we're, we're, we're just going to have to move ahead.
1: Yeah. So moving from specialists on the hardware side of stuff to specialists on software. So you mentioned NPM. So it sounds like you're working with JavaScript node and and some of the rest of those aspects there when you're uh, hiring developers or you're, you're mentoring developers. Do you recommend that they learn a little bit of everything, learn that they, that they go deep in one ecosystem? What's the, the best uh, path for them from a, a career perspective?
0: Well, I think that when I look online and look at how people write, they would make it sound like the best strategy is to learn a little bit of everything. And I can tell you from experience hiring and like just to do a parallel, like I'm trying to learn a foreign language. And I will tell you that in that process, if I knew a little bit of my base language, learning that other language is not made easier because it's hard to figure out what these moving pieces are. And so I think that there's a temptation to hedge your bets. I'm going to know a little JavaScript, a little Java, a little Ruby, a little Python, all these things. And then somebody will, whatever they need, I kind of do it. And the truth is you never get strong in anything that way. You, you should pick one thing go all in, get really good at it, and then that will give you a base to operate out of as you learn other topics, it's easier to stack on top of that. And I've seen this actually play out because uh, I'm working with a lot of CodeUp graduates and they focused very heavily on Java, which is not the technology that we use in any way, but because they got far enough in it, when we started to replatform them, they were kind of like, oh, I get, this is sort of like this in Java. They could translate the concepts back and then move forward faster. And, and that made them way easier to work with than if they were kind of dilettantes and all these things. And that's, I think, the, the temptation is, well, what if I pick the wrong one to double down on? And the answer is, hey, look, that's the risk of the technology universe. I, I picked a bunch of technologies that did not win or make it. Um, if you're really that concerned, go look at something like Tiobe or one of the rankings and pick one of the top tens. Don't go obscure. Unless... That's another path, right? Like I'm super interested in Elixir as part of our future. And right now, nobody writes, not nobody, but almost no one writes that for a living. So the people who got into it have a real driving passion. And that usually tells me they're really serious about their programming. And so then I look at them differently. And so that's the other path is pick something that is up and coming and obscure and get really good at it and find those forward thinkers, or get really solid at something that is well known and then use that to translate into the next technology stack as you move on.
1: We are getting ready to head into the bottom of the hour break for a news, traffic, and weather update. This is CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI, and I'm joined this week by Dirk Elmendorf, one of the founders of Rackspace and now uh, Chief Technology Officer for Brokerage Engine. We're going to be diving into his uh, current business in that market and really rolling out technology to make folks safer while making them more productive and making their life easier. Because I think this is one of the ways we're going to be able to up-level everyone's security is by uh, rolling technology out, developed by specialists like Dirk and his team, uh, that will build things in a safer manner uh, than the ad hoc processes that we're doing today. So we will be right back to uh, carry on that conversation. Welcome back to the 100th episode of Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20 year internet security veteran, and I'm joined this year by another 20 plus year internet veteran, uh, one of the co founders of Rackspace, Dirk Elmendorf. And uh, 20 years ago, I was uh, trying to figure out uh, how to keep folks that were on the internet safe, and Dirk was trying to help figure out how to get more folks on the internet. So uh, we've been talking about uh, entrepreneurship, starting stuff up a broad variety of topics during the first half of the program. If you uh, just joined us here after the break, you can listen to the rebroadcast or replay of this uh, on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, You can find the content on iTunes or Pocket Casts or any of your favorite podcasting services. Um, I've been making some repeated shout-outs here. If you would uh, like a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt, if you can find a podcasting service that we are not uh, available through, uh, share that with us on Facebook or Twitter, and we will get you a t-shirt. So um, if you don't, were with us before the break, it uh, said we were going to talk some about uh, brokerage engine, and what Dirk's working on these days, and uh, how um, technology uh, can make folks both uh, more productive and safer um, at the same time. If you look at many of our, our business process workflows out there today, uh, there's all sorts of things that we do that are, are not super safe and secure that... Uh, if we did adopt a more modern solution, um, these things would get better. So, yeah, one of I think, Dirk had mentioned uh, that if you uh, give your bank account number to uh, Jenny, we're going to pick on Jenny here instead of Ann or or, or Bob or Alice. Um, normally, the cyber world, we pick on those folks on Alice and Bob, but we'll pick on Jenny for a second here and say that if, if you give Jenny your bank account numbers, maybe we we got it switching to a new direct deposit system at the office, and Jenny's going to get everyone's bank account numbers to give that to the payroll company. Uh, and you feel okay about like maybe even just writing your bank account information on a piece of paper and handing it to Jenny. Not encrypted, not safe. You're not even really sure what Jenny's going to do with it after she types it back into a computer to give to the payroll company. You're not really sure if she's going to just email it to them or if she's going to go to a web form that's encrypted or not encrypted. and um, You're not really sure how Jenny's going to get those numbers over, but you're not worried about it because it's a small sample set, um, and it feels kind of okay.
0: I I think a lot of our business processes are built around this. This is the, this is the idea that security slows you down and you kind of go, look, this is one more thing I've got to get done. And so you go through it and you go, I'm going to give the information and, and because it is a small sample or it's a small process, it's not really in anybody's best interest or, or their top of their mind to say, how do I make this process more repeatable and more secure and more reliable? And I think one of the things I've seen as we've moved to a more SaaS-based world is that the SaaS provider does feel it's important to make it scalable and repeatable and secure because they're not just doing it for one office. They're doing it for lots of people, and those small mistakes compound. And I think that this is uh, one of the ways that the SaaS model helps people, you know, you, you could argue, well, now you've concentrated all this data in one place, so it's under attack. But on the other hand, it means that the people who are collecting that data know that it's valuable and, and can spend the time and effort to make sure that it is maintained more safely. I mean, I think about this around LastPass, that, that I see some security people go, well, you know, they're just going to attack LastPass. I'm like, yes, but for most users, LastPass is still going to do a significantly better job of defense than any individual user. And given the way that um, mail services are compromised and your identity gets spread out, that, that every little bit counts.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've concentrated money in banks and arguably the money is much safer in banks than if we all carried around our entire bank balance in our wallet every day. Uh, there would be much more theft, much more loss of those dollars. So this is an easy way to think as you, you, from a, a data perspective. The money in banks is just as valuable as the bank account information or whatever other confidential information is in a SaaS application. And um, no one's suggesting that we go withdraw all our money from a bank right now and carry it around in our wallet
0: actually we're running a live experiment with that math right now with cryptocurrencies where people are trying to figure out where do they hoard their value and you're watching people be uh extorted swindled and and kind of a bunch of problems that banks for all of their foibles have lar- have have done a better job of addressing in mass yeah and so it'll be interesting to see how this plays
1: out yeah, the cryptocurrency wallets, we had uh, some uh, guest on recently that we, we talked about where and how to store your wallet and what different kinds of wallets. So if you uh, wanted to learn more about how to try to keep your cryptocurrency safe, uh, check out uh, our episode of the program on that. And you can find that on our website again at www.cybertalkradio.com. But yeah, it's, that's a tricky one, and they're getting stolen all the time. There was even a Planet Money did a thing where somebody went and tried to find the hard drive that he threw away where... Uh, the he thought he had a big cryptocurrency wallet uh, on it and found the the hard drive at a dump and got it back. And it was actually just his test wallet with like a few dollars worth. Not the one where he thought he had a lot of Bitcoin. So not good. Uh, but that money's lost for forever. Yeah, so as you're, you're building a brokerage engine, so what is this software as a service application going to do to make someone's business life better?
0: Well, so brokerage engine is focused on two portions of the... Uh, real estate market, we we are basically a back office service for real estate brokerages. And so we focus on uh, making it easy for agents and brokerages to onboard new customers and manage their listing and make sure that that process is handled well because the, the uh, real estate space of sales is very competitive. And then the other side, uh, we've kind of rationalized and streamlined the pro- the back office sales operations around calculating commissions and distributing money And keeping track of where all the pennies go i think that one of the things that shifted in this market is as it's got more uh, competitive it becomes all the more important that you know where your operational efficiencies can be gained and who's really delivering value to the customer and how you fit into that and we collect enough data to actually give that information to the brokerage whereas i think in the past it was more of a compliance function of hey i'm just going to write down some numbers and then we'll make sure our bank accounts balance at the end it didn't help you run your business better.
1: Yeah. So when you, you think about a, a real estate transaction, there's a whole bunch of confidential information there. Uh, I mean, you want everyone to discover the listing, but after you've got a buyer and seller in a negotiation for a, a purchase on a property, there's all sorts of confidential things during that negotiation, whether it's between the buyer and their agent or the seller and their agent. Uh, and then there's even the information if you have multiple offers on a property uh, those need to be kept separate and safe from each other Uh, and I'm I'm certain that mistakes get made all the time in the world where people are doing these things manually you might forward the wrong offer through to the wrong person or a reply back to the wrong person because email doesn't really have a control or a check or a balance and um, we've moved from doing much of this stuff maybe over the phone or with couriers physically delivering documents back and forth to email-based workflows. So as, as you guys start to build this out, I mean, it sounds to me like your primary competitor's email, which has a number of, as I think about, security and process control flaws. Uh, or what are you guys doing to kind of address all those different workflows uh, in there on who gets to see what?
0: Well, I mean, I think that, that part of that is teasing out exactly who, who is allowed in first and then what can they actually access. And I think that you're right. A lot of this stuff in the past has been done in a model of, hey, the faster the better, uh, doesn't care if it's safe or secure. And I think that as as people have become more savvy about what implications that can have to their finances— they care more about that, that their transactions are handled responsibly. So part of that process is pulling apart the process and saying, okay, who's allowed in? What can they do and can uh, are they not allowed to do? And how do we grant access or revoke access? And these are all things that happen in each, each workflow to make sure that the right people get the right data at the right time and not the wrong people at the wrong time. Because that, that uh, rep- repetition of that mistake at a small scale is not great. But when you do it across lots and lots and lots of businesses, it becomes a, a massive problem.
1: Yeah, I uh, we we've all done this and I'm, I'm certain that uh, it happens in the real estate world as well where you, you go to forward an email to somebody and you hit the forward button and you type in Dirk and, and in your address book maybe you have Dirk Elmendorf and Dirk Nowitzki and you end up forwarding it to the wrong Dirk. Um, that stuff happens. You may or may not have had that mistake uh, where you end up with Mr. Nowitzki's emails before but that, um, stuff gets sent to the wrong place because there isn't an explicit permission granting on email. It's it's pulling names out of an address book for you.
0: For the longest time, because I own a lot of Elmendorf domains, I get all sorts of hilarious messages from Elmendorf Military Base that they've completed to the wrong .org, .com, .net, and they end up to me, I've I've had to... I. I, I kind of ignore the ones where they're like uh, catering requests or congratulating somebody, but every now and then I'll see something. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna respond to this to tell you like this message probably wasn't supposed to leave the military. You should look at how you auto completing things <laughs> because yeah. I'm not I don't currently serve. So uh, you know, look at
1: how you complete the email. It's just hard. Yeah. So it's in, in email if if you look at any of the processes out there in your business. And you write down from step one through step N at the end, how many different steps are relying on email. And almost every modern business process has some step relying on email today. And and I think it email, because of the flexibility and the uh, ambiguity around it, creates inconsistencies, creates uh, opportunities for um, all sorts of different cyber attacks and spear phishing we had on um, two attorneys from Langley Benack that one of them talked about a uh, title company in a real estate transaction where uh, they had a lawsuit there where money got wired off to the wrong spot because a hacker was in someone's email account and uh, because it's, that email is used for so many different things it's not just an explicit system with per- fixed permissions and access controls for just the real estate transaction it was real estate transaction and everything else in that person's life getting done over that email account that was compromised.
0: Well, and I think, look, when you're starting out and you're building up, uh, your business and you're trying to get things done, spreadsheets and email rule the world, right? That is the, that is the Swiss army knife of, of kind of baby processes. You kind of yeah. send some email to get some approval and you, you do some stuff in a spreadsheet, but as the, your business grows and becomes bigger, um, Sometimes businesses don't realize that that's something they have to leave behind if they want to grow to be successful, that you have to look at how do you make these processes more repeatable and scalable as you grow. And I think in the past, you know, real estate is a market that was dominated by kind of mom and pop local shops. And I think that the market is shifting, that the real estate companies are getting bigger. They have to be more sophisticated. They're, they're fighting a, a variety of different buying and selling uh, propositions. And so I think that that is something that got them to here. But as they say, like, what got you here won't get you there. And so I think that there's, I totally understand the instinct to start with email and spreadsheets, but if you're going to build something big, That's one of the things that that software really helps you move away from.
1: Yeah, I think same thing in that title company side of the world used to be a lot of uh, small local players, uh, and now it's uh, evolving into a few either large regional or national players in in that side of the the real estate process as well. So uh, if I'm a a real estate agent today and I'm, I'm taking photos on my phone and then I'm going to take those photos and, and send them off to a tech team. Like, how do I? How does a normal real estate agent get photos of my house onto all the different um, online listing services to post a listing?
0: Well, so yeah, I think that's part of the thing that has changed in the in the space is that it's not you. If if you're really serious, it's not you, the agent anymore, taking the pictures on your phone, and it's it's you the agent asking your like working through a relationship with your brokerage to find photographers who have this service and then once they get the photos you approving them to make sure that they're the right photos and then making sure that they get synced out to all the various appropriate places i'm i'm actually kind of tracking an interesting phenomenon that because real estate is so literally regional right it's tied to the land itself it's, it's compartmentalized and some of the new movers in the kind of like red fins or open space in the iBuyer space they don't think of it geographically they think of it as whole markets they're starting to win some of the seo war because they pitch to a larger like broader based audience than a, a regional or local real estate firm and like that's part of the shifting landscape the the truth is I feel like I'm part of the last generation that got to study technology or computers as a separate subject. Now everybody's life is impacted by all this stuff. There's no, well, I just want to do it the way we used to do it because that's not how the world, the world is moving on.
1: Yeah. So in, in brokerage engine, so helping, I guess the workflow there for the agent in listing properties, managing the listing, paying out the commissions. um, and, and so you're, Focus is, we talked in the first part of the program, on a specific niche and then solving a specific problem to start with. So you you went through that piece. As I think about the whole real estate uh, transaction and buying process, though, uh, you have buying and selling of properties but what about renting of properties or property management do you guys service or do any of those things today so currently we
0: only deal with the kind of transactional portion so if one of the agents and one of our customers manage it like recruits a customer for a rental property but we don't actually do property management i mean the i always used to joke that you know if you go up to somebody and say hey i do computer stuff like, what does that mean? Are you in security? Are you, you like, it's a it, there's a lot of it. And the same thing in real estate is that we're really focused on making sure the transaction goes through well. And then there's this, all these other amazing areas to to uh, develop and, and, and bring into the modern era. I mean, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff looking at what is the real value of a square foot in a high rise bil- building. And I've seen several startups in that space that it's so far outside our scope.
1: Yeah. And residential, commercial, land, everything. We are currently focused mostly on residential. Okay. So we
0: do some land and some development, but it's mostly residential transactions.
1: Because those also have different laws and different processes and different flows. Or why? Why residential for the first thing?
0: Well, so I'm a big believer in the model of uh, I'm a technical person. You know, I love the technology itself, but I partnered with business people who have real experience. And so my partners, uh, Jay Cooper and Brian Alston, came out of residential. Uh, brokerages, and so they had a, they had you know decades of experience in that space, so that when it came time to build something, I could ask them and say, "How does this work? How should it be?" And I think that that is a that is a competitive advantage. A lot of times, as the tech person, people think, "Oh, well, I'm just going to give you kind of broad strokes, uh, sketch of what it is, and you'll build it." And it turns out like that's not how. Uh, you build, like I was able to build stuff at Rackspace because I was the customer of Rackspace. And I yeah. think a lot of the internet stuff, that first wave, it was being built by people who were already super users of the internet and they knew what they wanted. Yeah, I'm they su- were solving
1: their own problem.
0: Yeah, they, I'm sure the Google guys wanted to find more stuff online and it was a disaster and they solved it. Now we're starting to reach into these new markets where the technologist is not the user of the software. We're the implementer. And much like if you say, hey, I want to build a home, most homeowners tend to think about their bedroom, maybe their kitchen and their den. But there's like, well, where are the closets? How many electrical outlets? Somebody has to make all these other ancillary decisions. And if you get them wrong, like for the rest of your life in that house, you're like, gosh, man, where do I have to plug this in? Or, Or my favorite is like, well, they put a GFCI here, but the reset button is on the sink over in that bathroom. And you just have to know that. Yeah. Uh, so like those are the kind of mistakes that in a house it's one person, but in a business can be life or death.
1: Yeah. So in in this real estate transaction process, so you're getting folks out of email and into a, a SaaS application?
0: We that's, That is our mission. Our mission is to slowly chip away at all these. It's, I, we, I would love to say that we got them all out of email right yeah. away, but it just, it's a slow process of showing, hey, look, the customer gets a better experience. You get to do more. You get more done if we can actually turn it into a workflow. Email is not a workflow. You, you're. It's more of like you're putting a message in a bottle, hoping for the best.
1: Yeah. So what about fax machines? Do you still see them <laughs> out there in some of the customers you've been talking to?
0: There. We still have fax machines. It's still. It's still a thing. It's still a thing. Um. I. We. We have. We continue to chip away at that problem as well because yeah. it's. It's one of those things where people. I think people use fax machines as a means of an easy means of uh, document collection, and I think uh, everybody would like to see that move to a, a safer, secure path.
1: So as you're you're getting folks uh, out of email and into a, a workflow to do their as you're getting folks out of email and into a workflow to complete a real estate transaction, what does this do from a, a terms of efficiency for them? if you you looked at as the processes that they were, using prior to using a a tech platform like brokerage engine?
0: Well, I mean, I think they're, they're twofold, right? One is that you start to actually look at how did the, does the workflow get completed? You get the, the straightforwardness of, Oh, I can just go into my mobile app and send a message and know that it's going to be followed up on and uh, that that's going to turn into a ticket for somebody to actually get work done and be held accountable. So you have that kind of like base level, better process. But then as a business owner, because you're starting to control the workflow, it means you start to get data about, well, how long does it take for these things to work? Because, you know, it's, you cannot improve what you don't measure. And it turns out with email, there's no way to measure what is happening, who's doing it or why they're doing it. But once you start turning into a real workflow, you start being able to say, oh, well, it turns out that agents are spending a lot of time trying to review the photos. Maybe we have a bad photographer rather than, that it's a case where that, that information can stay hidden in the kind of bowels of your email, you yeah. start to go, Oh, everybody's having a problem. It's not just one picky agent. We should fix that. And I think that if you're going to do uh, business improvement, you need to have data to know that you are making things better, not just running by your gut. I mean, I, I'm obviously as an entrepreneur, I'm happy to use my gut when I can, but I think the best outcomes come from a combination of data and gut, not just gut or not just data, frankly. Yeah,
1: I think it's that data to where it gives you a good enough level of confidence. You're going to make a decision and that decision is going to make whatever process you're changing better than the process you had the day before. Yeah, and uh, that if you're not using data to make decisions um, and you're not necessarily prioritizing, you're going to prioritize the loudest problem uh, rather than maybe what the actual biggest problem is. And, and you, no one may have noticed uh, that the photos were Uh, something that was tying up all of your agents for a bunch of time because it had, quote, always been that way. So they had just decided, like, this is a thing that is going to take this much time, and they didn't know it could be better. And you as a business owner knows maybe it could be better, but you didn't have the visibility to know it was a problem because no one was complaining about it.
0: Yeah, and also I think that a lot of times when people hear this stuff about workflow and improvement, they think, oh, well, now I'm just a cog in a machine. I can't do anything. And and the truth is I saw this at Rackspace. Rackspace provides world-class service because we we're able to focus people where that counted. And so that's a good workflow should enable your employees to, to spend time where it's most valuable. And in the modern era, that means making the customer they're dealing with happier, Yeah. right? If responding quickly to an email on its own to say, I got it, isn't a high value usage, making sure that a first time home buyer feels good about the process is.
1: Yeah. And it, and with the, something as, as complex as real estate as well. If you have, um, all of this stuff in email, email becomes your document repository as well. Uh, and how do you guys manage documents and links to those documents via a uh, real workflow?
0: Well, and so we start pulling them out of uh, local file stores and email boxes and start putting them in cloud, in redundant cloud storage so that you can, you can track who has access to them, when they were created, where there are versions. You can prevent them from, oh, I'm sorry, my laptop was lost with that data because I, you know, it got stolen out of my car. Like these are all sorts of business continuity issues that uh, I think in the tech world we faced a long time ago and forget that the the future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.
1: Yeah, and so it's not f- four months after the transaction, someone's going, "Hey, where's the HUD one for that closing?" And you're well, the agent that did the closing it doesn't work for us anymore um and we purge email boxes after agents don't work so i don't even know if we have a copy of the hud one do you want to try to call the other agent that worked for the other firm that might still be there or do you want to call the buyer or seller and see if they have a copy of it or whatever else it, i mean this type of stuff happens because things don't necessarily get cleanly archived um, with every single document um, with the, the way a lot of the process is. and missing all the time no but that agent was probably supposed to save that hud one to somewhere on a file server at the firm and it just didn't happen for whatever reason on that one deal
0: well and and again if you're an a single office trying to solve your own problem you kind of go well this is as good as we can do if you think about it but when you start building a product for someone we start taking the best practices from every customer we interact with to go oh well this is a much better way to do it let's make that um easily available to all of our customers so they all play a better game.
1: Any nonprofits or things you're involved in that you would like to give a, a shout out to here before we uh, wrap our program up?
0: Well, so uh, I'm, I do a bunch of stuff with math and science and kids um, because although I would love... I, I have no idea if everybody's going to be a programmer someday. I, I read a really great article talking about how everybody would have to learn the telegram back in the day and to keep you humble of not getting too specific. But I tend to believe that Keeping people in the pipeline of being open to math and science prepares them for a future in in technology. And so in that end, I'm super involved with the witty to keep science fun and interesting and, and engaging for people of all ages. And then I'm also involved with the UTeach program at UTSA. And what's really cool about that program is they select math and science students and convince them to come be teachers. And so that's where you take somebody who actually likes math and gets them to teach math. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, for our 100th episode. Uh, Thank you out there in the listening audience for uh, listening this week and listening uh, hopefully for the last couple of years. Uh, We plan on uh, being on the radio and out there on the Internet via different podcasting services uh, from now and uh, well on into the future.